right, grab your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Now, today's sermon is about heaven touching earth. It's about the kingdom coming down. It's about the glory from the mountain, as we've discussed, invading the darkness down below. That's what we're on about this morning. And because this sermon is about heaven coming down, it must also be about Monday morning's dust up with your wife, Tuesday afternoon's scuffle with your coworkers, and the flying off the handle that may or may not happen with your children. Because that's all the stuff that needs to be invaded and glorified, isn't it? That is, in large part, the darkness down below that needs to be glorified. This sermon is about the fact that all of life is a glorious opportunity to manifest Christ's glory in the normal, in the mundane, in Tuesday afternoon. For a brief review of how we got here, I'll summarize the last three sermons. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, we learned that we're meant to reflect the glory of God as Jesus did on the Mount of Transfiguration. In verses 14 through 23, we learned that we must have faith that we will reflect that glory. And in verses 24 of chapter 17, all the way through chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, we learned that the mechanism for reflecting that glory is humility. That's how it happens. As we said last week, it doesn't get any more glorious or beautiful than the one with all authority in heaven and on earth stewarding that authority for the benefit of those who are beneath him as he stoops down to serve those whom he has no obligation to serve. The glory of God, as we said, was seen visually atop the mountain with brilliant bright lights. But that same glory is seen functionally when the lofty make themselves low in service of others. That's the path to greatness in the kingdom, in Jesus' answer to the disciples' question from last week. And the reason that's the path to greatness in the kingdom is because that's how the great king conducts himself. And I should say at this point that everything that God does in interaction with us is actually a humble act of service. Has that occurred to you before? That everything that the God of the universe does in interaction with us is actually a humble act of service. Of service, God served you when he decided to make you. <laughs> you see what I mean? The world would have gotten on swimmingly had you and I never existed. Yet God, in his kindness, wanted you to experience the pleasure of food and drink and sunshine and accomplishment and grace. So here you are. Not because you're necessary to him or even to us or to the world continuing but because God humbled himself in an act of service to make you exist. God making anything rather than leaving nothing was a humble act of service. You remember that God is perfect and he is in perfect community with himself. It's not as if God was lonely in eternity past and he's pining away for the day when he would finally make me. <laughs> Certainly not the case. He made me for my benefit, not for his. Not for his. He needs nothing, and I do nothing to satisfy him. This is a humble act of service. You see, humble acts of service are what God does. They manifest the glory of who he is, and we're called to be like him, manifesting that same glory. Now today, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus isn't leaving those points of emphasis at all. 
He's still going on about bringing the glory of the mountain down through humble lives of service from those of us who've been made citizens of heaven for the express purpose of colonizing the earth. He's still talking about that. He's just getting more and more specific in his application of that principle. So with that in mind, we'll begin reading in Matthew chapter 8, or excuse me, 18, beginning in verse 5. It says this, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And so Jesus moves from insisting that we be humble, lowly, and childlike in verses 1 through 4 to now insisting that we receive the humble, lowly, and childlike in verses 5 through 7. Now we can start to understand what Jesus means when he says receive these little ones, receive these children. We can start to understand what he means by that by looking at what the opposite of receiving them would be, which he tells us in verse 6. Here's the opposite of receiving them. He says that we should receive them. However, whoever causes one of those little ones who believe in him to sin, that'd be the opposite of receiving them. Whoever does that, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And this seems to suggest to me that we aren't supposed to, if you will, rush these little ones into our conception of maturity. Rather, we're supposed to receive them warmly as they are. Interesting a thought, though, that may be, and maybe doesn't sound initially like it aligns with some of our conservative intuitions. But I believe here that Jesus is speaking, or speaking both literally and metaphorically when he's talking about children. I think that he's talking about children, and I believe that he's talking about immature believers in him. I believe that both of these categories are in view. He broadens the category from just being literal children to believers in general when he shifts his language from children in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5 to, quote, little ones who believe in him in verse 6. So he's got both of those categories in view. He's talking about actual children, to be sure, and he's talking about immature believers in him. Plus, we've already seen in verses 1 through 4 that the adult disciples are called to imitate the virtuous aspects of childlikeness. And so we know that there's a metaphorical use that's at play here. So I take Jesus to be speaking both of actual, literal children, whom we ought not cause to stumble, and believers in general, who are the children of God, whom we also ought not cause to stumble. And I'm using the word stumble here because I actually think it's a better translation of the word that is translated sin, at least in the ESV, because the Greek word there is scandalizo, and it means we get our word scandalize or scandalous from it, but what the word means is to put a stumbling block in someone's way. So the word means to cause somebody to stumble. So this is saying not to put spiritual trip hazards around God's kids. That's what Jesus is getting at. Don't put spiritual or moral tripping hazards around God's kids. Now, we taught this text in respect to literal children back in 2021 during our Masculinity, Femininity, Marriage, and Family series. It's still available online. And in that message, we discussed one of the primary ways that parents trip their children spiritually, and that's by failing to give them a Christian education. 
It's one of the primary ways that children get tripped by being denied a proper Christian education. I won't rehash all of that here, but I will include a link to that sermon in this week's email because it is worthy of review. But to, to the point of emphasis on literal children for this morning's purposes, I just say that we parents are to receive these precious children. We're not to push them away from us into fields that are full of stumbling stones. We're to receive them. We're not to push them away from us into fields full of stumbling stones. We aren't supposed to put our children in situations or scenarios in which they're likely to trip morally. Some examples of that that come to mind are unfettered and unmonitored access to the internet. That's a stumbling stone that most modern parents unthinkingly invite their children to trip over. (laughs) Here's a smartphone, have a good time. It's a tripping hazard. And don't limit your thinking on that point just to pornography. Think about rampant idolatry. Think about uh, the identity crises that have become so normal among the younger demographic. Even think about the denigration of our children's attention spans. All stumbling blocks that we routinely shove them in the direction of. Another one of those common stumbling blocks as we apply this to parents and literal children is unfettered and unmonitored interaction with their significant other. All right? Here are the keys. Be back at 10. Look at me. They're going to trip. They're going to trip. Christian dating doesn't have to be weird or prudish or stuffy, but it can't be stupid. And whatever it is that we've normalized is stupid. And the outcomes should indicate that to us pretty clearly. Hormonally supercharged teenagers shouldn't be spending large chunks of time together alone. And the fact that I have to say something like that out out loud is an indictment against the state of the pulpit in America. That such a thing is even necessary to articulate is itself silly. Now certainly this text isn't only applicable to parents, but seeing as we are entrusted with the children whom Christ holds so dear, Its most weighty application is certainly to those of us who hold that office. Dad, mom, we ought not stumble our children. Don't trip your children under the guise of giving them life experience or because you don't want them to be made fun of by their peers because they don't know the names or music of the latest trendy degenerate. No, let's not stumble our children. Let's receive them. Let's keep them close to us, that they may not stumble and fall. Now, on the broad category of causing believers in general to stumble, let's note that the context here is interpersonal relationships within the household of faith. That's the context that we're talking about. He's talking about little ones who believe in him. So we're talking about believers. Those are little ones, again, who believe in Christ. So we're thinking about our interactions with brothers and sisters in Christ as we strive to press each other toward Christ-likeness. And one of the things that Jesus is saying is that even those relationships, in that context, there are dangers even in that sort of scenario and situation. And that may strike us as odd that our relationships with other believers could be an environment that is fraught with danger. 
That may be an odd thing for us to consider, but, but that's what Jesus is giving a warning about, particularly and specifically that environment. We certainly understand something like Psalm chapter 1 that says, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Don't stand in the way of sinners. Don't sit in the seat of mockers. We understand pretty readily that, okay, that sounds dangerous, that sounds compromising, that sounds like it could lead you into sin. But here, we're being warned about the way that we keep the company of other believers. That seems odd. How could those relationships be stumbling? Jesus is talking about the homeschool co-op, the private Christian school, and the people around your table at potluck. Maybe you're thinking, well, why is that dangerous? What, what could be the danger there? Well, the reason there's still danger there is because you're still you and I'm still me. And the potential for me to increase and Christ to decrease is a live concern. That's why even that environment can be fraught with its own kind of dangers. So how can interpersonal relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, seeking to manifest the glory of Christ, be dangerous? And how is it that that environment can give rise to sin or stumbling? Well, two Two ways in Scripture that we see that even that environment can produce stumbling blocks. One is the classic freedom flaunting that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and Romans chapter 14, where some brothers who didn't mind eating meat sacrificed to idols tried to cajole or debate other brothers into eating with them, despite the fact that to them it felt wrong to do so. That's kind of the classic example, right? When we think about not stumbling other believers, and it's the same word used in the Pauline epistles as Jesus is using here. So certainly I take Paul to be extrapolating and applying the teaching of our Lord from Matthew chapter 18 when he is addressing the Corinthians and the Romans on the same issue using the exact same word, right? So that's the classic example that, that we think of, right? We think about meat sacrificed to idols, and then we extrapolate from that to the issues of our day that somebody may have a sensitive conscience about, and we don't want them to violate their conscience. And so we think about that sort of classic example of not flaunting our freedom in Christ in the event that it's going to be offensive or uh, morally, uh, a moral tripping hazard for a brother or a sister. The second way that that can happen, these stumbling blocks in the household of faith, is the pharisaical freedom restricting that Jesus addresses in his disputes with and rebukes of the Pharisees who tied heavy burdens on men's back that God never ordered them to carry. These are the other, this is the other way, rather, that these stumbling blocks can arise even in our own fellowship. So there's both a liberal and conservative style of stumbling people. That's the point. There's a liberal way to stumble people. There's a conservative way to stumble people. The liberal version presents a Christian freedom that looks suspiciously worldly and unholy, right? But then there's the ultra-conservative version that presents a Christian freedom that looks suspiciously like it isn't free at all. <laughs> it's like, you keep using that word, but I'm not sure that you know what it means. Right? Some Christians, in order to make sure that they appear free and actually exercise their freedom in Christ, do so by being loose with their language, unguarded with their humor, and indiscriminate in their media consumption, with the net effect of looking identical to the world from which they've been set apart. That, that's one way that this looks. Other Christians, in order to make sure that they appear free from compromise with the world, effectively cut themselves off from it, making tents up on the mountain, a mountain which they're hopeful most people won't be able to climb so it doesn't get too crowded up there. <laughs> Right? 
We'd like to be on the mountain alone, preferably with people who just have our last name. <laughs> Both of those modes of being are wrong and will stumble little ones in the faith. The little ones who are shaped by those liberal sensibilities will be more concerned with personal happiness than they are with holiness. They'll be more interested in delighting themselves than in doing their duty before God. We've got an abundance of that in our culture, don't we? Because that's been the primary point of emphasis in pulpits for the last, I don't know, 50 or so years. I'm not really a historian. It's probably longer than that. I don't know. But it's also true that those little ones who are shaped by those conservative sensibilities can become insufferably self-righteous and can confuse being strict with being biblical. That's also a ditch on the other side of the road, isn't it? So you can stumble into licentiousness and you can stumble into legalism. And when I say legalism here, I'm not, I'm not afraid that you're in danger of believing that you're supposed to earn your salvation. I know that that's the classic legalism, but there is another version of legalism that's just obsessed with rules. And where God hasn't given one, we're happy to fill it in, right? And so there's also that form of legalism. So you can stumble into either of those things. Both must be guarded against, and the guy who churns out little Pharisees will have just as bad a day on Judgment Day as the guy who churns out little secular humanists. Right? Both of those things ought not be produced. So we ought not delude ourselves into thinking that making people stumble into, if you will, red sins is better than all those people who are causing people to stumble into blue sins. That's sort of our mentality, though, isn't it? Now, at this point, you may be wondering how all this is related to humility and bringing glory down the mountain by means of it. What's the connection point? Because I'm, I'm in fact, going to argue that it's this call to humility that is running through and animating every section of this chapter. But here's the bridge. It's the humble person who can strike more than one point of emphasis at a time in order to serve the developmental needs of the person who's in front of him. So again, go back to the context. What, what are we talking about here? We're talking about not causing little ones to stumble, which is to say, effectively, if we wanted to use colloquial language, we're talking about discipleship relationships. We're talking about how we are developing the other believers around us. What are those engagements going to be like? Obviously, we know from Hebrews 10.25 that we're supposed to be stirring one another up toward love and good works, that iron is supposed to be sharpening iron. That's the environment into which Jesus is speaking, and he's saying it can be a dangerous environment even when we've got our Bibles open and it's a prayer meeting. He's saying there are still dangers to be aware of because we can still stumble one another even in those environments. And one of the primary ways that that stumbling happens is when you choose one point of emphasis and you augment it to the point that it's the only category that you can speak in. Now, we've seen this really obviously with left-leaning Christianity, haven't we? There's one point of emphasis, and it's love, grace, mercy, kindness. And so it's like, so yeah, accept everything, because we can think in one categorical arena, and it's just that. And so we forget how to call anything sin. We forget how to call anyone to repentance. And we just say, come as you are, period. Jesus doesn't judge. God's not angry. Let's not talk about blood, sacrifices, or fire. 
because that's inconsistent with the one category that I would like to emphasize. But humility, humility is to say, I've got sensibilities that run on this spectrum or this spectrum, but God's word also includes this, 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 and this. So I'm going to humble myself and submit myself to the full counsel of God's word. And that means the person who's sitting in front of me might not need to hear about love and kindness right now. They might need to hear about how, God, how angry God is about their sin. Maybe that's what this person needs. And it's the humble person who, despite not wanting to strike that point of emphasis, will strike it anyway in submission to what God's word actually says. That's actually a humble act of service that puts your preferences, your personality, on the back burner and elevates that person's developmental needs above what you would most like to talk about in any given moment or in any given interaction. It's a humble act. And the proud person won't engage in it. The proud person strikes whatever point of emphasis he's most drawn to or most enjoys talking about without regard for how that point of emphasis may become a tripping hazard. And haven't we seen the way that the exclusive emphasis on love and grace and forgiveness and mercy has itself turned into a tripping hazard because there's nothing to balance it out on the other side? That should be pretty obvious to us by this point. But I'll give you another example of the ways that a point of emphasis can become a tripping hazard. Let's say that you've got a guy who wants to reclaim and reestablish the patriarchy. Right? He wants to hold modern women accountable for, let's say, spitballing here, the divorce rate, 70% of which are initiated by women. Or, or maybe wants to hold women accountable for, let, let's say, the abortion rate, 100% of which are perpetrated by women. Or how about the abysmal state of voting since the suffrage movement? Did he say that out loud? So that guy, let's call him Wesley, just for kicks. Let's call him Wesley. Well, he... He has to be able to identify when he's teaching or talking to a man who actually is inclined toward abusing his authority or mistreating the women under his care. I got things I want to talk about. I got things that fire me up. I got a point of emphasis that is my primary joy to lean on and press on again and again and again. And I've got a soapbox that I like to stand up on. I have to be aware of who it is I'm influencing and how an undue or exaggerated emphasis on that could itself turn into a stumbling stone. The fact that the Me Too movement was a feminist ploy that fabricated abuse accounts and lowered the threshold of abuse to the point that any husband obeying the Bible makes the abusers list, the fact of that doesn't mean that there aren't anything or there's no such thing as a man who, becoming angry at women as a class, may be primed to mistreat them, given the opportunity. That's a reality. And the moment that we're in is a moment where you could easily swing over into that direction. Easily swing over to that direction. Those of you who watch lots of YouTube videos will know what I'm talking about. Now, if I'm talking to that guy who may be primed toward negative interactions with women, and I only stroke my pet issue with no temperance, with no qualification, with no negative illustration, then that doctrine will become a tripping hazard. Do you follow me on that? Do you follow me on that? 
in the same way that only emphasizing the gracious, squishy, loving kindness side, when it was the only emphasis that was struck, also became a tripping hazard. So there may be a difference between the thing that I want to talk about and emphasize and the thing that the person in front of me actually needs me to say. And it's a humble act of service not to stumble someone because it requires doing something other than gratifying yourself. So you have to think about and elevate the other person rather than going to whatever your primary and most loved talking points are. And I'll tell you, this happens in Christian communities quite a bit. It really does. That's why every church kind of gets known for its niche thing. It's because its pastors and elders have that one thing that they want to talk about. <laughs> and so every sermon somehow makes its way there. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be looking at the insanity in our culture, the insanity of our time, and I'm going to select illustrations on the basis of speaking to those things. It's not to say that that's bad or that that's wrong, but it is to say that there's a way that you can misshape people, misform people, and ultimately stumble people if you don't want to say all that the Bible has to say, and instead you decide to say the few things that you most like that the Bible says. Next, Jesus tells us not to stumble ourselves in verses 8 and 9. He says this, And if your right hand, or excuse me, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye that with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So Jesus goes from don't cause other people to stumble to don't stumble yourself. Don't stumble yourself. And the reason that he has to say this is because if we're honest, sometimes we want to trip. Isn't that true? If we're honest, there's sometimes that there's a relatively large part of us that would like to trip and fall into a particular sin. But maybe we're not courageous enough to just, in a really blatant and obvious brazen way, go off into open rebellion. And so what we do instead is we just sort of surround ourselves with people, influences, and circumstances where we know there are going to be lots of things to stumble over. So that when our plan of stumbling comes to fruition, we can kind of look around and say, but didn't you see all the environmental factors that led to my fall? That subconsciously there's something happening when we put ourselves in certain environments. And the thing that's happening is that we kind of want to trip. I kind of wanted that. And so again, we hang out in places and around people who we know will drop rocks in front of us. Because if we're honest, we wanted to fall into that sin. Jesus says, don't flirt with that. You cut it off. You cut it off. You throw it away. You get rid of it. Do not stumble yourself, which is also an act of humility, because what is that except dying to yourself? Amen. That's what that is. That's you saying, here's what I want. I'm not going to gratify myself. And in a humble act of service to Christ, I will obey what he has said rather than elevating what I want and putting myself, myself in these environments that are fraught with tripping hazards. Of course I'd like to spend long hours alone with my girlfriend. Of course that's what I would like to do. And yeah, I may be hoping that there's a rock somewhere that I could trip over. I'm going to cut that off. Because this is not about serving myself. It's about serving the king who died for me to set me free 
from sin. That's an act of humility that elevates Christ rather than elevating yourself. And finally, for today, we come to verses 10 through 14. It says this, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine in the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So in verses 5 through 7, we see that we're supposed to humbly abstain from stumbling others. In verses 8 and 9, we saw that we're supposed to humbly abstain from stumbling ourselves. And now in verses 10 through 14, which we just read, we see that we're supposed to humbly go after those who have themselves stumbled. Now this is a huge part of Jesus' ministry, wasn't it? Not so much evangelism outside the people of God, but rather drawing God's wayward people back to him. Isn't that one of the primary things that Jesus' earthly ministry was doing? He's constantly calling God's wayward people to come back. This is also because Jesus is the greatest prophet. And what were the prophets constantly doing except calling God's wayward people come back? They had stumbled and God sent the prophets after them. God's people had stumbled. He sends his son after them. And then look what he says in verse 10. He says, see that you do not despise these little ones. Which little ones? Well, I believe, given the context that he gets into in verses 10 through 14, that he's referring to the little ones who have stumbled. Don't despise the little ones who have stumbled and fallen away. Don't despise them. Don't dismiss them. Don't denigrate them. He says, go get them. Go get them. Now, here's the thing, and I'm talking to myself here, but often we conservative Christians stink at this because we tend to wear it as a badge of honor when people leave us. Don't we? We have a tendency to wear it as a badge of honor when people leave us. Did you hear about the Browns? Not, not our Browns. It's just such a generic last name that I, I just used it as an example. Okay. <laughs> right, but but you, can, you can see how it goes. Did you guys hear about the Browns? They left. They couldn't handle having their toes, stepped on, their, their toes stepped on. I guess we're a little too hardcore for them. We're a little too holy for them. They had to get out. They couldn't take the heat. I used you as an example so you guys could never leave us because now that's what everyone would assume. <laughs> just, just kidding. Right? Isn't that, isn't that kind of how we are, though? Particularly those of us in small, really conservative churches. Somebody leaves and we're kind of like, uh-huh, suffering for the kingdom. Those guys couldn't hack it. Uh-huh. How holy we are, they left. And if we're honest, we're kind of a little bit like, mm-hmm, I guess we must be doing something right. I think that this text may be telling us that we're a little bit too quick to say they went out from us because they were not of us. And says, hey, hey, first, how about calling them and setting up coffee first? <laughs> right? How about you go after them first? And certainly it may be the case that they have gone out because they were not of you. But what does Jesus say the first course of action is? The first course of action is, hey, go get them. (laughs) Go get them. Before you look down your nose and make assumptions as to their motivation. They may have tripped over this or over that. 
And what they needed from you and from me, perhaps, was for us to help them out, help them up, rather, instead of just pointing out their grass stains. We have a tendency, though, to just point out the grass stains. Do you see the mess they got themselves into? Phew. Kind of glad they left, honestly. Who wants that mess around here? Who wants grass stains coming into church? Jesus says, go get them. Bring them back into the fold. And don't do it with a chip on your shoulder. <laughs> do it happily. Do it humbly. And rejoice when they come back. I think this is a word to those of us with conservative sensibilities, not because those sensibilities are wrong, but because, as always, they need tempering. They need tempering. So this whole chapter, as we'll continue to see, is about humble glory. This is how God is with us, which means that you and I must be this way with each other. And that when we do that, we're bringing the glory of God out of the heavenlies and down into the plains where we live. Now, all this talk about humble acts of service can and has been taken to mean that Christians should be non-confrontational softies whose deference knows no bounds, right? Like that singular point of emphasis that we already talked about, which has obviously become a stumbling block that sent many Christians into waywardness. And I don't want to be one of the Bible teachers who erects those stumbling stones. Jesus says, those who primed the church to embrace wokeness those who primed the church to embrace homosexuality, those who primed the church to just let in all sorts of sin without addressing it, without calling to repentance, those who primed the church to do that, it had been better for them to have had a millstone tied around their neck and to have been drowned in the sea than for them to have mistakenly struck a singular point of emphasis without telling anybody else any of the other verses in the Bible and just the ones that were most comfortable to, to proclaim at the time. And I say that because, again, we live in a time where that sensibility is still predominating in most pulpits. That's true. And so even a passage like the one that I just preached can be taken to mean, yeah, we're just non-confrontational softies who always show deference, and there's no boundary lines to it. But next week, what we'll see is that's far from the truth. Because next week, we learn how to confront sin in the life of another believer humbly and gloriously. That's precisely where he moves next. It's precisely where he moves next. So that we'll get. This doesn't look the way that most modern pastors have told you it looks. It has a manifestation and application that is confrontational of sin. But you can see what Jesus is doing, right? He's showing us just how earthy this whole kingdom glory thing is. He's showing us just how on the ground this whole thing is. It's intended to show up in our relationships with our kids, in our interactions with our buddies, and in our pursuit of people who leave our church. Like, he's saying, this, these are the spaces. This is his application. Here's the glory on the mountain. We're supposed to bring it down. You're supposed to believe that you're going to reflect that glory. And how are you going to do it? Through humble, normal interactions of the sort that we've just been talking about today. Regular, normal, mundane stuff is the stuff of the glorious kingdom of heaven, which means that regular, normal, mundane stuff is all an open opportunity to bring heaven down. That's what he's getting at. But in closing today, I just want to point out that after Jesus commands humility, as he does in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 18, he then goes about teaching us how to become humble, and that is by doing humble things. 
Did you notice the flow here? Jesus commands humility of his people. He says, you'll neither enter or be great in the kingdom of heaven unless you have the humility of a child. And then what does he do except stack up a bunch of things we're supposed to be doing that are all humble things? What's he telling us? The way to become a humble person is by doing humble things. That's what happens. It's not just that you need to think more about being humble or read books about being humble or meditate on being humble or pray about being humble. Jesus says, do humble stuff, become a humble person. So as we close this morning, you need to think through how you can humble yourself this week in service of someone else in ways that cost you, in ways that are not in alignment with your natural sensibilities. Because doing humble things makes us humble people. Let's pray.